Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to April Doyle about her climate sci-fi or cli-fi novel, Hive. April is a writer, tutor and editor who lives in rural Kent with her husband and two sons. She has been teaching creative writing since 2012 and her short stories have been published in magazines in the UK and Australia. Her debut novel, Hive, was shortlisted for the 2019 Exeter Novel Prize. In this episode, we discuss how April was inspired by a news report on the climate crisis, how she stepped outside of her comfort zone to help promote her novel, and how her career as a creative writing tutor has informed her own work. But first, here's April with an excerpt from Hive. Catelyn Walker stood in the yard in the near darkness, a cup of coffee in one hand. Though she'd eked out her last packet for a couple of months by using smaller and smaller amounts in the machine, this was her very last cup. She'd topped it up with hot milk, and if truth be told, the flavour was hardly there at all, but she could taste it like a memory. The bitterness, a dark, smoky shadow of the beans. She'd heard that coffee was still available if you knew who to ask and had enough money to pay, but with the farm barely bringing in enough to cover her costs, Catelyn was not one of those people. She would have to make do with artificial coffee substitute like everyone else. It was even better than the real thing if you believed the advertisers. According to the man in the village shop it was okay. Well, it was hot and brown anyway, and you had to try not to think about real coffee while you were drinking it. This might be the last cup of real coffee she ever had. Tears pricked behind her eyes as she took the last few sips, embarrassed that she was feeling so sorry for herself, but it didn't matter. There was no one else there to see. She stood with her hands around the empty mug, the last of its heat fading away, trying not to think about the future, her ears straining for the sound of the lorry. Where the hell was Victor? Out on the lane, a vehicle came to a stop, then after a long pause, there it was, his lorry coming up the driveway the headlights sweeping over her. She waved her free hand. There was there was still hope. As long as the bee farmers kept going, there was hope. Victor grinned when he saw Catelyn waiting. She always had a smile and something to eat when he arrived. He wondered what it would be this time. Some bacon, or eggs maybe, or a slice of hot toast, the butter melting in. His stomach growled. He stopped the lorry in a hiss of brakes and jumped down from the cab. 
Catelyn was thinner since last year. Her face was pinched. It looked like she'd been crying. Instead of their usual handshake, he held out his arms to her and bent to give her a brief, awkward hug. Good to see you. Catelyn wiped her eyes on her sleeve. Come on, the sun won't wait. Now for the best bit, thought Victor. Months from now there would be fruit on the trees and all because of the bees. He unlocked the catches, slid the bolts from their housing, pulled the straps over the hives so that they were free. He greeted the bees, as he always did, with secret words he whispered into the hives. He asked for their help. He asked them to do their miracle, to make apples, cherries, pears and plums appear on the trees. He begged them, in a way he'd never done in the past. Then he turned to Catelyn with a smile. Here goes. He removed the netting, pulling it away in swathes, gathering it in his arms and dropping it to the ground. They could fold it later. The sun would be up soon and the bees would wake. There was no time to waste. He hefted the first crate into his arms and passed it down to Catelyn. She rested it on the tarmac for a moment before transferring it to the trailer she'd hitched to the back of her quad bike. It was the best way to distribute the hives throughout the orchards. The hives were designed to be easily moved. Squat, squarish wooden crates with box joints at the corners and a flat lid so that they could be safely st stacked on top of one another. They were sturdy and solid, painted and patched every year in shades of yellow and blue, and at this point in the season were beginning to look a bit tatty. Catelyn and Victor worked quickly, loading up the trailer with hives, Victor securing them while Catelyn climbed onto the quad bike and revved the engine. Hurry! The light was seeping into the sky now. They had to get moving. Victor clambered onto the back of the bike and gave her a thumbs up. They drove on a dirt track between the ranks of apple trees until they reached the last rows by the field's edge. Then they hefted the hives from the trailer, setting one at the end of each row. Catelyn turned the bike and they headed back for more, racing against the sunrise. Hi April, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, Hive. Hi Chloe, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So could you start by describing what Hive is about? So it's a, a speculative fiction novel and it's sort of a somewhere between Station Eleven meets Don't Look Up. And it's set in a near future dystopian world that's on the brink of ecological collapse. People are struggling because um, food supplies are dwindling and uh, the kind of everyday systems are starting to shut down. Um, but there's, there's hope in the form of a small group of courageous and inventive protagonists. And also the natural world, when the humans start to play their part, isn't quite ready to give up the ghost. And it's a, it's a very prescient novel because it deals with topics that are so well, in everyone's consciousness at the moment, and it's about climate change and it's about, you know, climate disaster. And I imagine that the inspiration for this novel just came from existing in our current world. And there's a big, one of the big kind of themes of this novel is the idea of nature versus technology and how it works together. But I wonder whether you could describe where that first idea came from and how you kind of, thought about its potential for becoming a novel yes well as you say it's something that we're all living with and we're all probably thinking about a lot and I think probably the idea had been brewing in my head for a long time um but two things sort of happened at once I was made redundant and just stopped 
being able to sleep properly. So I was awake and bright eyed and ready to listen to farming today at uh, quarter to six every morning. <laughs> and they had a series of reports on one week, they had a series of reports on pollinator decline and how it was significantly impacting um, crops and you know how if it carried on we were going to be in trouble um, and it was like sort of a, a finger click it was like a light bulb going on my, in my brain and at that point the whole story sort of downloaded into my head and nothing has ever no story has ever done that before for me usually it's a bit of a struggle yeah. to get the plot but it was like the whole plot just went boom into my head and I had to just start writing that's a pretty special moment then yeah. so did you feel like you had a sense of the story and the characters from that point how did you then begin writing it did you just kind of that day sit down how did it work from then I think it was that yeah it was that day I got up and made a cup of tea and started scribbling notes and actually the first draft was set in America because I'm sure you know in America they they do have these big bee kind of farming operations and they start on the west coast every year in the almond orchards and then they move across the country the bee farmers move their hives across the country as the crops change so they pollinate the almonds and then the oranges and you know move across the country with them so it did start off as quite a big a much bigger story with a bigger cast of characters and a more kind of more of a thrillery kind of feel to it so one of the themes of this novel that I've mentioned is this idea of nature versus technology, how whether the two can work together or whether they're two things that impact each other in a negative way. And there is an answer, I think, given in your novel near the end of what what the kind of solution is. But was there a particular reason why you were grab like why you gravitated towards this topic to write about? Was it something that you just felt because it was so important at the moment that you were just kind of desperate to write about it how did that theme come about I think it was more it was more about the plight of the bees and pollinating insects and the decline and the tech aspect sort of I, I knew that that was going to be part of the book but I didn't think about them working in harmony nature and technology working in harmony that was something that actually a, a reader an early reader said to me that they'd noticed this theme and that was when I sort of pulled it pulled it out more and turned up the volume a bit more on that part of the book it hadn't it hadn't even occurred to me I don't know if that ever happens to you when you're writing you don't actually even realize some of the important themes as you're going <laughs> I think I've, I've spoken to a lot of writers that feel that I, I've had totally the same experience that you don't kind of set out with this idea that I'm going to write about this or I'm going to say this. But then once you've finished and you have a second look at your work, you can kind of see the themes emerging and then hopefully on the next draft, you can make more of them. So I think that's quite a common experience. Mm. So how did you deal with the kind of technology side of writing this? Because I can imagine that it involved quite a lot of research, not just in terms of like the science and the technology, but also in terms of like your world building because it's it is near future so it's not too far away from what we experience but there are some differences which we'll talk about in a minute but how did you go about researching this um well the the majority of the research I did was about bees and pollinating insects um I'd sort of had a 
you know, a, a real passing, a real interest in them, but just kind of a pedestrian interest, nothing specialised. So I did spend a long time looking at um, the world of the bee and the world of the pollinating insect and just how many staggeringly different varieties there are. But the tech side, I, I'm vaguely aware that these sort of things are being developed and explored. And I didn't want to tread on any toes and I didn't want to get into any difficult legal areas. <laughs> so I didn't research at all on that. It was purely my imagination. But from time to time, I would ask tech-minded friends, does this sound plausible? Um, and, you know, I'd get a little bit of help here and there. But, you know, the joy of writing something that's set in the near future is, who knows? Yeah. You know, these things, these things, are, they, I think they're just plausible enough to be believable in, in a few years' time, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly your world, world building is very believable. And I kind of wanted to ask you if you could describe to people listening now what everyday life is like for the characters in your novel and how you made those decisions just in terms of kind of what's changed and what stayed the same because obviously the main impact is the food situation and there is a point in the novel where things get worse and things like rationing is brought in but tell us a little bit about what what life is like because one scene that really kind of stands out in my mind is there's a farmer in your novel called Caitlin who stands there drinking her very last cup of coffee knowing that this is the final cup of genuine coffee that she's got um so yeah how did tell us about everyday life and then explain a little bit about how you made those decisions that's I mean I just tried to imagine what would it be like I think I would I mean a lot of us would be heartbroken if there was no more coffee I was thinking what would it be like eating your last chocolate bar and these little luxuries that we have that we do take for granted that they're going to be there in the shops every time we go um Maybe not so much post-lockdown, actually. I have to say, this was all written pre-lockdown. Right. And, you know, queuing for toilet rolls was the furthest thing from my mind and empty shelves and panic buying pasta and things like that. So I think in a post-lockdown world, this might read slightly differently because we can all understand a little bit about empty shelves now. Yes, yeah, so foods are gradually disappearing from the shelves. And I thought probably the first things to go would be the things that are imported. So coffee, chocolate, bananas, oranges, things like that. And our food, our food worlds will probably start to shrink down quite a little bit. So there's rationing. There are sort of horrible food supplements, which I think, you know, in now things are being grown in labs, aren't they? Foods are being grown in labs. And I was thinking, yes, that's probably something that we would do to try and ameliorate the lack of food situation. People aren't allowed to have pets anymore. Pets are considered a luxury. And so you can only have an animal if you're if you need it, I suppose, for security purposes. And even farms in this near future world have become more. Um, they, they've moved away from the traditional farmland because it's too difficult to keep them secure. So there are these big sort of corporate farms, floodlit and, you know, people patrolling the fences and mm. because food has become incredibly valuable much more valuable than we know it now yeah that's one of the biggest kind of threats in the novel well partly one of the threats is this idea of um hostility towards farmers and people that have access to food as well mm. so how did you 
make those decisions about what was going to be different from because there's I mean we talk of kind of near future but there's no I don't know flying cars or there's there's very few cars on the road and you've made sort of certain decisions about obviously the food side but what about the kind of other aspects of everyday life what's changed in that in that world um I think people aren't flying as much money is obviously more of a more of an issue and so there are more people walking there are fewer people people can't afford to put petrol or um in their cars or charge their cars up because there's a lot more electric cars medicines have become more of a problem there's one character in the book who has chronic health issues and you know there's a huge question mark over her future the mother is incredibly worried you know what's Mm going to happen when we can't get this anymore for her and I didn't go down every avenue of things going wrong. I tried to keep it to the domestic and the yeah. the food because obviously that's where the pollinators come in. Um, yeah, I could have really, I mean, I scared myself writing this book, but I think if I'd thought about everything that would change, that would have been too terrifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. I think those things, because they are part of all of our lives and are so essential, that's frightening enough without going into anything further one of the parts of your novel which I thought was really successful is that there's not just kind of obviously the tensions in the wider world about Mm. how they're going to survive um but there's also kind of conflict between your characters as well and I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit about some of your kind of key characters and um how you created them well the first I think the first character that came into my mind is Victor he's the bee farmer he's a commercial bee farmer but he loves he loves his bees they're not just machines to him you know they are he's he looks he looks upon himself as a shepherd almost Mm. and he's very in touch with the natural world and he's a he's a lovely big bear of a man you know he's (laughs) yeah I found him a very sympathetic character I felt safe with him you know yeah I really liked Victor and he's got he's got a wife and two girls and I feel like you know he would do anything for them there's Annie, who is a research entomologist, and she's dedicated her life to to research into bees and to try and find a, a, a sustainable future for them, really. So bearing in mind climate change and things like that, she's looking to find a way that they can be safe and, and developed if they need to be to, to survive in the future. And she works in an enclosed environment. She has a, a lab in Kent. Um, it's a sort of simulated meadow that's completely enclosed and she's in charge of the weather and things and she can keep her bees safe there and then there's Scott who is the he's the tech wizard who they meet a little bit further into the story so he he works on the technology solutions and it turns out that he and Annie know each other from a long time ago which adds to the complications. Mm, Yeah there's a a slight sort of I wouldn't call it a love triangle but a slight kind of conflict there as well. Yeah, that was fun to write. That was fun to write. But Annie is incredibly focused on the bees. She really, I think she knows that the future is at stake and Mm. she can't allow herself to be distracted at all. (laughs) So how did you do your character work then? Are you someone that likes to, I mean, I know you said the kind of the story came to you in this um, lightning bolt moment, but did you sit there and kind of do character sheets? How did you, how did you come up with these characters? they just they did sort of arrive for me but I do find it difficult um to write characters if they don't 
come to my mind straight away. I do find that side of the writing difficult. I find the plots much, it's much easier for me to write a plot and setting. But these characters, I felt like I knew them straight away. Are you then quite a big planner when it comes to your work? I mean, I know this one maybe was a little bit different from how you normally work, but are you someone that um, makes notes or has some sort of like timeline in your mind when you're writing? I think so. I've, I've become much more like that the, the more I've written. Mm. I don't know if that's a natural progression for writers you know when your your first novel perhaps isn't isn't as well planned but I found for myself it's much easier to um, do a little bit of planning before I start or just in the early stages quite often in the early stages I'm partly writing scenes bits of dialogue and then partly writing notes and partly working on a plot kind of all at the same time Do you kind of write scenes as they come to you, like ones that interest you, or do you write in a very kind of chronological way? I try and I try to do it chronologically if I can. However, if I find myself getting stuck, I do to keep going. I will try and jump to the next thing that I know in my head instead of trying to grind on with the next scene. If I don't know what it is, you know, it's better, I think, to write the thing I can already imagine. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And do you have almost like a, a writing routine? Are you someone that likes to get up early in the morning and write? I mean, you were you were getting up early when you first had this idea. Are you someone that likes to write first thing in the morning? I'm, I'm certainly better. I'm sharper early in the morning um, before everything else starts to crowd in, you know, headspace is limited. <laughs> um, if When I'm writing a first draft, I think I do carve out a bit of a routine in the day. Um, at the moment, I'm sort of between projects. So I, 
I'm just trying to write if I can, when I can. But yes, once I get stuck into something, I'll try and do something every day as early as I can in the day. Yeah. Are you someone that kind of gets a, um, a big amount of words written in a day or are you more like a slow and steady writer? I, I blop them up quite quickly onto the page and then there's a lot of editing later. I was going to say, which bit do you enjoy? Is it the, the kind of the first draft kind of word vomit or is it the, the editing finessing later that you prefer? I prefer the first draft because mm-hmm. I think by the time I've come to the end of the first draft, I feel like, well, I've told myself the story now. And then there's a lot of work to do afterwards. But I'm trying to embrace the editing a bit more because <laughs> <laughs> I know it's something that has to be done. And I'm really trying to get my head into the place where I can say, yes, I enjoy the editing. I know that lots of writers do. I, I can't, I'm not there yet, but I'm trying. <laughs> So what is the, is that, would you say that that is the part of the process that you find the most challenging, the editing, or is there another aspect that you think is the hardest for you? It's the editing. Hmm. It's the editing. Structural edits, I am definitely enjoying more ever since I, ever since I discovered the hero's journey and the stages along the journey. I, I enjoy that bit. It's the, it's the final finessing, I think, that um, is less fun. Do you have any books that you kind of go to that are your, um, I don't know, writing Bibles, your handbooks for for your editing process? There's Christopher Vogler's book. I think it's called The Writer's Journey. And he he really delves into the hero's journey and character archetypes and things like that. I go back to that one again and again. And there's another one called Screen. I think it's called Screenwriting Tips for authors which is brilliant because it takes the techniques that, that screenwriters use yeah um do you know the book no but I I actually think that screenwriting books are quite helpful I mean particularly if you're thinking of your novel in terms of acts um mm-hmm. I know I think a lot of people are big fans of um Into the Woods by John York and his oh yes his basis is tv writing um so he comes at it from that angle but I think there's a lot in there for any writers really but um I think there are some brilliant books out there and I I'm certainly a fan of the um Save the Cat books which are kind of structure led um because I'm someone that finds the kind of plotting side really difficult um so I think having those books is almost like someone holding my hand through the process Mm. (laughs) yeah I I'm really fascinated by the the structure of stories Mm. and how there's a, there's a structure to stories that we all, as readers, we all understand, even if we don't, even if we haven't unpicked them and looked under the bonnet. But I, I find looking under the bonnet so fascinating and seeing, you know, how it all works. Yeah, because I think often we read things and we unconsciously do it. But then until you start to write yourself, you're not really noticing those patterns and those kind of movements of, of story. And then when you start to look for them, you can see them and you can go, right, I know exactly what's going to happen here because... I've yes. already unpicked a, a story very similar to this. Sometimes it can ruin books and films for you when you keep doing it, though. Yes, and I take pride in ruining films for other people as well. My <laughs> kids, if we're sitting watching a film together, this is the midpoint or crossing. we're crossing the threshold. <laughs> and my kids yeah, just look no at me. I want to watch a film with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering whether you could speak a little bit about how you came to get your um, book deal, because... You were published with um, the Book Guild, which is an independent press 
So how did that book deal come about? Because I know that you currently don't have an agent, but you're possibly thinking about getting one in the future. So how did this deal come about? Mm. I think, well, I think my aim is always to try and find an agent. Um, in this case, I for Hive, I, I tried really hard to find an agent and I'd had lots of positive feedback from agents, but always ultimately no thank yous. Um, and then I got shortlisted. I, I was kind of thinking about maybe just putting it under the bed with all the other ones, but I got shortlisted for the Exeter Novel Prize and it made me think that maybe there was something in this one and mm. I should keep pushing to get it out there. And I sort of came to the end of my list of agents. And then I was going to self-publish it. Um, but I had an email from the Book Guild who'd, who I'd also um, submitted to. And they said that they'd like to go ahead with a hybrid um, publishing deal. So what that enabled me to do was to have some hard copies of books published. If I'd self-published it, it would have been all ebooks. Mm. And I know. But I understand that it's, you know, it's important to have hard copies in bookshops, if at all possible. And as a reader of hard copies myself, I don't have a Kindle. So I just, that felt important to me yeah. if I could do it that way. So that's, that's one of the reasons that I went with them, the thought of um, having it in bookshops. Having the hard copies means that, um, and my been to, um, we both live in Kent and I've been to our local Waterstones and seen your book yeah. tables in Waterstones. So it allowed you to to go to Waterstones and, and have a conversation with them. And I know one of the things that worries writers, particularly when they're starting out, whether they're with an independent press or, or a traditional publisher, is the expectation of authors to do promotion or publicity themselves. Because I think, obviously, traditional publishing, you, you will have a... Um, a publicist and a marketing team but there is an element of if you're willing to and you want to to kind of go out there and and sell yourself essentially but when you're with an independent press the idea is is for the author to do as much of that as possible and I know you've done a, an incredible amount of promotion and um, as I said you're on the table in Waterstones um, so what sort of things have you done to promote your book and what would you say to any author that was feeling a bit worried or anxious about this aspect of it? Um, I would say, I would say if I can do it, you can do it. You know, I'm, I'm anyone who knows me will say that I'm not the kind of person who likes to put myself about. <laughs> I find it really difficult um, to, you know, to stand up and say, look at my book, <laughs> come and buy my book. But it's something that, you know, as the year has gone on, I've found myself getting less shy about it. Um, I've, what have I done? I've approached lots of local bookshops and like you say, the Waterstones, the local Waterstones have stocked it. Uh, yes, you don't always get responses from people and you don't always get a yes. And that's okay. I think just keep going. Don't try not to take it personally because bookshops have a lot of books to consider and they must have people approaching them all the time to mm. say will you stock my book so I've I've tried not to let that stop me um local magazines I've approached and I've had um some interviews in local magazines I've approached people who do podcasts Chloe <laughs> <laughs> and what else oh a couple of book groups have have read my book and 
friends and family haven't heard the end of it and they've been so <laughs> supportive and, and brilliant and just I couldn't have done it without them you know people mm. have bought bought the book and told their friends and yeah don't underestimate your friends and family because I'm sure people are people want you to succeed as a writer and yeah that's been that's been really one a wonderful part of the year is people just being so nice about it you've done stuff with the the university and yes. also um I think I'm right in saying you did a um some sort of bee related talk am I right there oh yes yes <laughs> I work at um a university in Canterbury and this was very early on I put sort of shyly contacted a couple of people and said what do you think about maybe doing bee bombing which is where you take you take a little packet of wildflower seeds and you just sort of leave them around the place for people to take so around the campus the Canterbury creatives who work at the university too it's, it's just people who enjoy making making things crafty things so we all came together and did crochet bees knitted bees origami bees and then attached them to little bee bombs of wildflower seeds and a little information thing and we popped them all around the campus so people could you know take them away plant things in their own gardens and have a little bee the university bookshop have been amazing and yeah I've done a couple of talks on campus and things do tend to snowball as well I think if you once you start to talk about your book other people will become interested and, and want to talk about it too so I think don't don't be shy or try to get over your shyness it's okay people want you to do well mm, yeah, and people want a, to hear about it it's a definite kind of fake it till you make it confident yeah yeah I think it can be really hard when you're particularly if you are a writer that is more introverted or shyer and you're used to just sitting alone working on your book um by yourself. quite happily yeah yep. and then suddenly you're rushed out into the world and you have to go and talk to strangers about your book and when it's your personal work it feels very um intimidating but I think you've done a fantastic job and hopefully people will feel inspired hearing you talk about how you've gone about promoting your book if they're worried about how they might promote theirs oh thank you yes I hope I hope people will I think not having an agent and a publicist means that you know I couldn't I couldn't not do it myself I had to get out there and I think that's been good for me yeah definitely I wanted to talk about the other side of your career because you've been teaching creative writing for about a decade. So is there anything that you've learned about writing or about your writing just from teaching the subject? Oh, loads. Yes, I I started teaching um, creative writing and life writing to adult learners as part of an adult education programme. And again, that's something I sort of fell into by faking it till I made it as well. (laughs) But my writing and the teaching have absolutely gone hand in hand. I learn things and find things for my writing group, craft things and um, stories about creative writing that are regularly in the news, new books, new writers, controversies, all that kind of thing, as well as lots of time mm-hmm. for writing. And I find that that just feeds, that feeds into my work as well. So especially the craft thing. And also it feels like it's something, uh, creative writing teacher should be doing you know I feel like if I wasn't writing that wouldn't that wouldn't be right for me as a teacher to you know be telling other people not not telling other people but making time for other people to do their work if I wasn't doing it myself definitely um I imagine that your students have asked you 
for advice on a lot a lot of different topics and a lot of different areas of writing but what do you think is the most useful bit of writing advice you've ever come across I think it's the rules versus tools of writing um which Emma Darwin I don't know if you know Emma Darwin um she does a she's got a wonderful writing blog called this itch of writing and I highly recommend it she talks about the craft of writing she talks about having the tools to do our writing rather than these are the things you can do and these are the things you can't do I think it's not always helpful to have rules like show don't tell and Mm. don't use adjectives and that's not terribly helpful (laughs) but she shows she shows us what the tools are that we can have in our writerly toolbox and we might use some of them, or we might not use some of them, but we, we know that they're there and we know how to use them. So mm. that's been really helpful for me. Yeah, that is good advice. So now that you are officially a published author, is there anything that you now know that you wish you'd known right back before you started writing? I think I've been incredibly lucky in that I have fallen in with an amazing group of debut writers. And I think... Chloe that if I hadn't met these debut writers I would I would have been in trouble this year I think the most important thing when you're starting your being published year your debut year is to find people like you that understand exactly how it feels because although we're we're a diverse bunch we've all got different writing deals we've all had different writing journeys the emotions seem to be the same for all of us and it's just been incredibly helpful to have a group of like-minded people so yeah I would say I didn't know I needed it but that's what I got this year if that makes sense yeah definitely. and I'm just so grateful I I wholeheartedly agree with you there um we've all been there in in the chat getting upset about something and saying I know this is ridiculous but but then everyone understands exactly what you're going through and it's it's uh and no one, I always say this, no one who's outside of kind of the group or, you know, that's not a writer gets it. And uh, I said to someone the other week that sometimes when you are having a moan or something is not quite right or, or you're upset about something, I think to people on the outside, it might seem like you're complaining that your diamond shoes are too tight. Mm-hmm. But I think for all of us, we just get it. Um, it it's so helpful to have. And also sometimes you might have a question about what does this mean and what does someone's just told me this bit of jargon publishing jargon and I've got no idea what it means and you can run it by the group and someone will know what it means and then you don't have to have that awkward moment of thinking oh do I just pretend that I know what it means or do, do I ask I mean obviously ask if you if you have if you know if you if you don't mind asking your agent or your editor and you have a good relationship with them and you don't mind kind of saying I don't know what this means um but I think it's helpful to have people that are going through the same thing as you yeah and also answering little questions about I've got a book event coming up I don't know what to do you know how long should my reading be or is this okay or is this normal absolutely definitely (laughs) (laughs) and and also people to celebrate the wins with as well yeah when other people might be really fed up of you talking about it <laughs> you know it's really exciting sometimes and you just want to say I've had a brilliant review or you know mm. yeah. that those people understand and finally 
I think I know the answer to this, but can you tell us if you're working on anything new at the moment? Yeah, I'm not, it's not new. It's something that I had, I thought I'd finished um, when Hive was coming out, but it's something I'm going back to. It's a, a rom-com that I've written. Um, I'm going back to, I've got an amazing mentor at the moment and she's helping me um, just to get it ready to go out to agents. So fingers crossed. Well, it's <laughs> very exciting and I can't wait to hear more about the book and your next writing journey april thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today it's been brilliant chloe thanks so much that was april doyle talking about her climate sci-fi novel hive which is out now and available to buy and if you'd like to support this podcast debut authors and independent bookshops you can now shop in the confessions of a debut novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org which i've linked down below in the show notes If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.